The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings and welcome back to the Terrifying Lies Podcast. I'm thrilled that you've decided to come into the room and stay a while. Today, I want to tell you about a card game I helped develop a while back. My brother, Larry, and I run a board and card game company called Quirky Engine Entertainment. Larry came up with an idea for a card game a few years back. It's called Trash War. We were surprised when Trash War received an endorsement by none other than Jared Hess, the writer-director of Napoleon Dynamite, Nacho Libra, and plenty of other hilarious movies. Jared said, Trash War is the funnest game I've played in years. My kids ask to play it every night. We are addicted. Thanks, Jared. And by the way, we're addicted to your movies. In fact, I heard recently that Jared Hess is directing the new Shanghai Dawn movie starring Jackie Chan and Owen Wilson. Congratulations on the gig, Jared. I'll be there opening night. Regarding Trash War, the card game. What goes on in the junkyards when nobody's around? After the metal crushers shut down and the Land Rovers roll back into their hangars, after the underpaid employees clock out and call it a night, that's when the knights arrive, dressed in shimmering armor, impassioned with chivalry and a taste for war. It is in the junkyards where these warriors find the tools for battle, and in the landfills, legends are born. Dressed in shimmering armor and armed with catapults, makeshift weapons, and plenty of trash artillery, Trash War, a card game of medieval junkyard combat, pits players against each other in a land-filled battle arena. This fast-paced game moves away from traditional turn-based play. Players follow the action, forming alliances and gutting out grudge matches while attempting to destroy each other's rampart walls. But don't take my word for it. I have here testimonials from real knights. Veterans of the Trash War. Mostly, we scavenged what we needed. Galvanized steel pipes for spear handles, stone sharpened rake tines for close combat. We became good at turning plowshares into swords. And oh, how we fought. Like demons we fought. We fought for honor, for glory for comfort in space. Mostly we fought because there was fighting to be done. When there's fighting to be done, if you ain't mad enough to pick up the sword and answer the call, well then, you ain't mad at all. In the old days, and I'm talking the very old days. They had it easier. Sure, they catapulted live ammo, cows, sheep, and even peasants over the rampart walls at each other. But in my time, an age of metals and reinforced plastics, we dealt with bigger artillery, television sets, mutated alligators, and grand pianos. Whatever the enemy could fit into a catapult, all coming at you over the horizon at terminal velocity. We took our blows, but we stood strong, shimmering in our armor, 
our chivalrous vanguard of might against nearly impossible odds. I remember the skies blackening with flocking of ravens. They came to pick over the battlefield for whatever they needed to survive. We were like those ravens, prying up this to get at that, digging through filth to find whatever measly prizes we could forage to strengthen our fighting prowess. I became good with a coat rack. I managed to sharpen with a rat file. It was more gut and mud than technique. But on the battlefield, it wasn't about honor. It was about survival. They say, nobility comes from dying well. I say, nuts to that! Nobility comes from standing like a chiseled out piece of granite against some armored mongrel coming at you with an axe handle mace wrapped in barbed wire. Nobility comes from looking that mongrel in the eye, raising your tire iron or your scorched length of cedar post and saying, come and get some. They were battles pitched in the bogs of rotted and refuge scorched earth, the crushed remnants of a once civil existence. But as for civility itself, <laughs> that's a laugh. Civility moved out the second the enemy decided to come at us with whatever they could find. Sharpened sardine cans, tire bolos, rat-infested, husked-out car seats. In the land of junk, you can pound a fender into a shield and learn to fence with a broken ski pole as king. Cry havoc and let slip the junkyard dogs of war. You can pick up a copy of Trash War at Amazon.com. If you want more information about Quirky Engine Games, visit QuirkyEngineEntertainment.com. today's story, Nate Peck is going to perform parts three and four of Whistler and the Children, the conclusion of the story. As I said in the last episode, I went on a long journey as an author to write this story. Most of the songs on the Zombie Sing-Along 2 and 3 albums come from the original story, a runaway epic that sits on my hard drive as a first draft. Someday, I intend to blow the dust off that project and finish it up. Zombies seem to be out of vogue a bit these days so I don't know when I'll get back into that world. The original story, the ridiculous long one, shaped out kind of like The Seven Samurai, or The Magnificent Seven, except rather than feudalistic Japanese warriors, or cowboys, protecting a farming community, I used truckers and a community of extremely frightened people living in Apple Valley, Utah. Should you ever listen to the two albums, you might find yourself a bit confused, as the songs don't seem to have much to do with the story that unfolds as part of the recordings. But I assure you that the songs and the story featured on the album come from the same world. Enough dilly-dally now. 
let's jump back into the action and see what happens to Whistler in the conclusion of Whistler and the Children. Dutchie had never driven a big truck, but he'd done plenty of driving around his dad's onion farm for as long as he could remember. Most of the farm trucks had been persnickety old standard transmission rigs that took a little extra cursing to get them going. His blood rose as he ground the truck into gear and eased off the clutch. The rig jumped forward, belching a blast of smoke from its twin stacks, but it didn't kill out on him. At least there was that. He hoped the kids, whom he had directed into back of the truck to hunker down with a mess of empty crates, scraps, and enough weapons to wage a small war, were holding on. It was going to be a bumpy ride. Dutch eased the truck forward and pulled away from the loading dock. Z's had accumulated in the parking lot. They were always around. Dutchie had made a habit of watching them from the roof of the overstock outlet. But as he pulled away from the building, he noticed that more of them than usual meandered the car bobbled lot. Don't be scared, Sue B, Dutchie said, putting a hand on the little girl's leg. She sat on the edge of the passenger seat next to Blink. Sue B rested her baby doll in her lap and looked out at the Z's, now approaching with their stuttering gates. Sue B wasn't scared. It was Blink whose teeth chattered. She smiled up at Blink, took his hand, and squeezed it hard. Blink looked down at her and forced a smile. I got you, Sue B, Blink said. I ain't going to let anything happen to you. But the quaver in Blink's voice didn't convince Sue B. The truck lurched forward out of the docking area and across the parking lot. More Z's had come from the surrounding community, peeling out of the alleyways, coming out of abandoned shops and houses, their clothing washed in grime, their faces pale and so drawn that they looked like well, like aspen trees in the hot light. Dutchie kept the truck in low gear. He didn't dare risk upshifting until he reached the road. He drove halfway across the lot and attempted a hard turn up between two rows of parked cars. That's when he got her stuck. With a full trailer and no experience, it was nearly impossible for Dutchie to predict the wide turn allowances needed to round the tight corner. He spun the 20-inch steering wheel as tight as he could, but didn't make the turn. Crunch! Something broke, back and on the driver's side of the trailer. The whole rig buckled up and the trailer yawed to the right. Dutchie checked his rearview mirror. He'd pulled the trailer right up on top of one of those little smart cars, parked in a handicap stall. The whole trailer dutched sideways, its left rear tires up off the ground. Dutchie hoped he hadn't hurt anyone in the back with his violent turn. Uh, now what do we do? Blink asked, a hint of panic rising in his voice. Relax, I got us into this, I can get us out. Dutchie found one of the reverse gears and tried to back the diesel up. 
but the smart car dragged along with the trailer, scraping over the pavement all sparks and grind. Two of the smart car's tires popped, blowing spent rubber all over the tarmac. Dutchy worked the truck back and forth, exploring the low gears, but he couldn't free the trailer from the little car. They're here, Sue B said, raising her baby doll and pointing its head out the window. Dutchy had been too preoccupied to notice that Z's had filled in all around the big Kenworth. Too many to readily count. He swallowed a hard ball of fear and watched them gather around the truck. What are we gonna do? Blink shouted. Dutchy slapped Blink across the face, clearing the panic away for a moment. First things first, Dutchy said. We ain't gonna lose our heads. Dutchy looked out at the growing number of zombies. Something's bringing them to us. I never seen this many in one place. They're slow, Sue B said. Why don't we just run around them? Yeah, yeah, that's just brilliant, Blink said. We'll just run around them, all 200 of them. There aren't 200 of them, maybe 20 or so, Sue B said. W wish we had them guns back in the trailer, Blink said. Dutchy snapped and smiled. Guns, now you're thinking, Blinky. Where are that long hauler's cannons you took off from him when we tied him up? Blink swallowed hard. I think I left him back in my room. Dutchy glanced over at Blink, successfully keeping most of his frustration out of his expression. Well, there's got to be more. Truckers carry lots of guns. Why don't you pop back into the sleeper and look for pistols? Blink nodded once, stiffly, and went into the sleeper. The night cabin in the Kenworth felt homier than Blink's room back in the Overstock outlet store. Even a tall man could stand up without bumping his head on the ceiling. The soft mattress would have invited Blink to lie down for a spell if circumstances were different. Shelves of books and drawers fronted the walls. A television and a DVD player rested in a nook at the foot of the bed. Blink got on his hands and knees and pulled at one of the oversized drawers beneath the bed. Locked, he shouted over his shoulder. You got a key on that ring? Dutchy rifled through the keys on the chain until he found a small candidate, about the right size for the little locks in the drawers. He didn't want to shut down the rig, but he had no choice. He killed the motor, pulled the keys from the ignition, and moved back into the cabin alongside a Blink. He crouched down, put the little key in the lock, and breathed a sigh of relief when it fit. Dutchy turned the key. Blink pulled the drawer open. Sure enough, three pistols, all automatics, rested on a few cartons of shells in the bottom of the drawer. Now we're talking, Dutchy said, picking up one of the guns. Be careful, I bet that thing's loaded, Blink said. Of course it's loaded. What kind of trucker would carry an empty weapon? The truck door slammed up front, causing both Blink and Dutchy to jump. They turned in unison to look into the cab. Shuby, Dutchy shouted. Silence answered him. Dutchy pushed his lanky body up and moved back to the cab, taking one of the pistols with him. Shuby, what have you gone and done now? She wasn't in the cab. Dutchy looked out the window, forgetting that he held a weapon in one of his sweaty hands. 
By the time he spotted her, she was winding and twisting her way through the tottering zombies, lithe and resilient. One by one, the pale monsters reached for her, groping and canting, some even leaning so far off from their centers of gravity that they fell to the tarmac. She moved on through the gauntlet, her baby doll clutched to her chest, nothing but determination on her princess face. Blink moved back into the cab with another of the pistols. He aimed it at the zombies outside, but before he could fire, Dutchie shoved the gun down. What are you, crazy? Dutchie said. You're gonna hit Sue B and blow out the window at the same time. You blow out the glass and they'll be in here on us before we can even yell for help. One of the zombies, a woman in a red dress and one identically colored pump, closed her hand on the back of Sue B's sundress. Dutchie swore under his breath as the woman pulled her close and opened her black lips for a bite. Oh no you don't, Sue B shouted and kicked the woman in the shins. Kick by kick, she backed the woman's leg away until the zombie's equilibrium left her and she cantilevered over, collapsed into the ground on one shoulder, releasing Sue B in the bargain. Before another zombie could get to her, Sue B ran. Most of the Z's had surrounded the Kenworth and were closing in fast, so once Sue B made it past the biggest part of their clog, she took off on a dead run towards the loading ramp. The steps up to the platform slowed her down. She had to take them one at a time with her short legs. She made it, Dutchie said. That crazy girl actually made it through. He pumped his fist in the air as he watched her enter the warehouse still holding her baby doll. <laughs> Two zombies had entered the warehouse once Dutchie had taken his Lord of the Flies faction out to the Kenworth. The monsters moved in ugly, slurped paths along the aisle of metal containers. They sniffed the air. Zs couldn't see well in the dark, but their senses of smell never betrayed them. Once they locked on Whistler's aroma, he knew they'd be on him. Whistler struggled against the duct tape, but couldn't break free. Both of the Zs zoned in on him at the same time. They turned their husked-up bodies in his direction and began to wobble toward him. Whistler had never been a praying man, but God seemed close at the moment, so he closed his eyes and thought up a few words to heaven. He hadn't done anything bad like many of the long haulers who owned the roads these days. He felt he deserved better than to die tied up by a bunch of half pints and left out for the animals. Whistler prayed for his life. He prayed for an angel to come to his rescue. The sound of little feet pattering on the concrete drew him back to his senses. He opened his eyes and looked up at the two zombies. A third form cut around the corner and came towards him at a full sprint. But this form was no zombie. It was the little girl, Sue B. Whistler smiled under his gag. If he couldn't get an angel, he'd sure as heck settle for a princess. She ran straight between the two zombies, not stopping for a second glance. One of the creatures made a half-gritted grope at her, but she was too fast. In seconds, she closed the distance between her and Whistler, her Mary Jane's clicking on the concrete as she ran. She skidded to a stop and looked Whistler in the eyes. Her expression seemed to ask, can I trust you? Whistler nodded and smiled with his eyes. That was enough for Sue B. 
She tossed her baby doll into Whistler's lap and crouched down in front of him. She reached into his boot, remembering how he had all but shouted for her to search there earlier. She found his knife, an eight-inch sheath weapon that Whistler kept razor sharp. With the zombies tottering closer, Sue B. went to work on the tape binding Whistler's right wrist. She cut and slashed, making a few accidental cuts into Whistler's arm. Finally, she freed his hand. He ripped his arm from the sticky stuff and took the knife from Sue B. In seconds, he finished cutting himself free. He stood up, stiff with the lack of circulation, his head still throbbing from the clubbing he'd received from Dutchie's little bat. He shoved Sue B back behind him and put himself between her and the zombies. His boot knife raised. Whistler tore the gag from his face, taking a few of his whiskers along with the strap of duct tape. He spat out the rotten rat that had nearly choked him out. Why don't you look away, princess? Uh, you don't need to see this. Sue B turned away from Whistler as he went to work. She heard a few sounds that made her stomach do flip-flops, something groany, something stabby, something drippy. Then everything went quiet. Whistler crouched down at her side, wiping his knife off on the thigh of his jeans. Where are the others? he asked. Out in the parking lot. That stupid duchy got your truck all twisted up and, and I think they're all going to be eaten. Well, don't let your pretty little self worry none. I'm going to get you and your friends out of here. Sue B. smiled. Then she did something unexpected. She pushed herself up onto the toes of her Mary Janes and planted a kiss right on Whistler's forehead. He smiled, hoisted her up onto one shoulder, and tramped towards the exit of the warehouse. When Whistler flung the warehouse door open, he almost lost hope. Zombies gathered auto exhaust like well, like ants to a sugar cube. He couldn't readily count how many of the vile creatures crushed around the idling Kenworth. There must have been more than 20, but they all had one thing in common, a taste for blood. Although the fumes had drawn them out, they knew fresh flesh when they saw it. They looked through the truck's window at Dutchy and his little toady blinking. The boy sat in the cab, Dutchy with his hands against the glass, his face a smear of disgust and fear. Shut down the rig, Whistler thought. The ones that have a beat on you will stay, but at least you won't draw any more out. A few of the creatures caught Whistler's and Sue B's scent. The creatures turned and began their long shambles towards the trucker and the little girl. Hunger in their eyes. There are too many of them. We're not going to be able to run through them like you did to get here. Whistler said. Do you have any wheels? A motorcycle or a four-wheeler in this place? We don't have any motorcycles, but we got something else that'll work even better, Sue B said. I think I got a plan. Whistler looked up at the girl on his shoulder, his brows knitted in consternation. He liked her more by the minute. Oh, you got a plan, huh? Well, why don't you let me in on it? Sue B. told Whistler what she had in mind. As Whistler listened, his hopes for ever getting out of the Overstock Outlet store alive dwindled. But Whistler couldn't think of anything better, so Sue B.'s plan would have to do. 
They're gonna break into this truck and eat us! Blink said, tears slickening his cheeks and more spilling from his eyes by the second. They're gonna, they're gonna find tire irons or bricks and they're gonna break these windows! Then, then they're going to eat us! He sobbed. Dutchy grabbed Blink by the shirt and shook him. Get it together, man. These things are stupid. There's no way they're going to figure out how to break into this cab. We're completely safe. Bam. 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 One of the zombies, a gray-faced man with a crew cut and the body of a linebacker, pounded so hard on the glass with his balled-up fist that Dutchy thought he might eat his words. Much more pounding like that and the glass would blast in on him and blink. Dutchy looked into the blank, dead eyes of the linebacker. They have no souls, Dutchy said. He'd never seen a Z close up before. Although he knew that they were walking death, he'd never had a first-hand look at the absolute lack of humanity in the creature's vacuous faces. Although they walked on two legs, although they used their hands and feet and eyes in the same manner as humans, there was just nothing left of mortality in them. They reminded Dutchy of the stupid cows back on the farm, devoid of reason or even a sense of being. The linebacker opened its mouth and crunched his face against the glass, curled his black tongue against the plane of the window, winding it and thumping it, that dead tongue gray and flaking probed for warm flesh. It reached for the rush of blood and the elasticity of tissue. The glass stopped it. Less than a quarter of an inch thick, the only barrier between life in the cab of the Kenworth and nauseating death. Blink screamed, high-pitched, without any sense of grace or self-respect. Dutchy covered his ears to block out the shrill of Blink's high-pitched whine. Dutchy thought that Blink would stay off scream and settle down after a moment, but Blink had reached a feverish place where any sense of grounding had been traded for panic. Dutchy grabbed Blink by the shoulders and wrangled him around. He shoved Blink into the sleeper cabin so hard that Blink collided with the bed and fell to the floor. You stay in there until you calm down. We're going to be all right if we work together. But you're useless as long as you squeal like a lost little girl, Dutchy shouted. Blink's screams tapered off into sobs. He pushed himself up onto the edge of the bed, scooted his butt back on the mattress, and fell over sideways. He curled into a fetal position and choked on the air with manic post-balling hiccups. Dutchy didn't care if Blink lost his mind as long as he kept it quiet while his wits slipped away. Dutchy left Blink in the sleeper and moved back to the cab. He'd give the gears another go. The Kenworth was nice and stuck. But Dutchy wasn't going to just sit there while the zombies figured out a way to break through the glass. As he sat down in the driver's seat and closed his hands on the 20-inch steering wheel, movement caught his eye from the warehouse. Coming towards the Kenworth across the parking lot, Dutchy saw the most absurd thing he could ever recollect. Sue B. sat in the front basket of a pink bicycle, the one someone had found in the back room of the Overstock Outlet store one day. The bike had become a welcome distraction against the monotony of coexisting in the store, 
Almost all the kids had taken turns riding the bike around the aisles and waving its pretty pink frame around the display cases on the storeroom floor. The bike brought a little recreation to an otherwise grinding situation. Dutchie and all 26 of those kids, all living together out of cans of cold food and boiled water. The trucker, Whistler, sat behind the handlebars, pumping the pink bike as fast as he could, gaining speed as he steered headlong towards the zombies. As far as weapons, Whistler had improvised. He steered the bike with one hand and brandished a length of galvanized pipe with the other. Whistler swallowed hard as he neared the clog of undead, cloistered around his Kenworth-like worshippers. He cocked back the galvanized pipe just before entering the fray. He landed his first blow, whamming the pipe into the head of the nearest Z, a woman with a Fidel Castro-looking cap and designer jeans. He hit her square in the back of the head and she dropped like, well, like a gunny sack full of tossed out meat. You okay, princess? Whistler said. Hit him harder, Sue said, holding tight to the lip of the basket. Whistler took Sue advice and began to swing. Whack! He brought down a teenage Z with dried blood flaking from his chin. Smack! He put a woman who had been 40, or maybe 60 when she had died, to sleep forever. Smack! He dented in the skull of a store clerk whose plastic name badge read Clark. Whistler went on that way, standing on the pedals, pushing the little pink bike for all he had, swinging the galvanized pipe like a pinch hitter. Z's reached for him and for Sue B from all sides, but Whistler met their slow, tentative gropes with solid pipe smackdowns. The galvanized still rang as it slapped against old dead flesh and bone. Then, something stopped the bike. In the greed and crush to get at Whistler and Sue B, one of the zombies had tripped and fallen in Whistler's path. The bike's front tire smashed into the fallen corpse and Whistler felt the whole thing slant forward. As the bike endowed, Whistler pinwheeled over the handlebars and over Sue B. He groped for her in mid-flight but couldn't reach her in time. Both of them soared higher than Whistler could have imagined. As Whistler wriggled in the air in an attempt to navigate a non-debilitating landing, he watched a series of tar-filled cracks in the pavement below fly by, marking the distance he flew. He hit the ground hard, his outstretched hands making first contact. The pavement bit into the fist that held the galvanized pipe. His other hand opened up with lacerations, courtesy of the rough tarmac. Pain exploded from his knees as they thunked into the pavement. He yelped out, sounding like a dog. Looking like a dog, too hunching there on the ground on all fours. He didn't have time to check himself over for broken bones, and there was Sue B to think about as well. Where had she landed? Whistler imagined the worst as he pushed himself up to his feet, raised the galvanized pipe over his head, and began to swing. Whistler! Sue B shrieked from just a few feet away. Whistler spun around toward her cry. A glom of zombies writhed over each other, trying to get at something small and tasty. Sue B, Whistler's little princess. Whistler went at them with force that came from somewhere deep within him, a visceral place that stored up all the violence and only let it out on special occasions. 
Slam after slam, he laid the zombies out, using his offhand to shove them to the side as he worked, using his cowboy boots to tramp in their skulls and break their bones. One of Sue B's slender arms reached out of the crush towards him. Whistler leaned into the fight and locked his bloody hand on her forearm. With a solid yank, Whistler feared enough to dislocate the little girl's shoulder, he pulled. Sue B popped out of the thrombus of zombies as if Whistler had drawn her out of her grave. In reality, Whistler probably had done just that. She came out besmirched from hair to toe with the grime of a dozen zombies. Whistler lifted her up onto his shoulders. She straddled his neck and wrapped her arms around his head, holding on tight. With Sue B perched on him, Whistler bushwhacked his way to the Kenworth, one short step at a time. Zombies came at him from every side, but Whistler had killed enough of them to know that fearing them could take a man down just as likely as their venomous bites. And so he worked like a machine, disconnecting his emotional center. He gained the step on the side of the rig and pushed Sue B up as high as he could. Get on the roof, princess, he rasped as he sidekicked one of the Zs, a man dressed in a baker's smock. Sue B climbed up on top of the rig and steadied herself on one of the marker lights. Whistler slugged it out in the crush, working within his confined space to gain enough room to move. But the Zs kept coming, groping with pale arms gnashing at him with ghastly teeth and curling dark tongues, issuing their awful hisses and chatters, some rumbling out that tasteless guttural chortle that always gave Whistler the creeps. Finally, with no other visible options, Whistler planted his right cowboy boot on the shoulder of the biggest man he could find, a big Z with a buzz cut that looked like he could have played on an NFL team. Whistler leaned into the man and put everything he could into vaulting from his perch. The big man craned his neck and bit at Whistler's foot, but the boot leather kept the creature's teeth from breaking the skin. Whistler stood up on the man's shoulders and tried to make a leap for the roof of his truck, but the big zombie closed his fists on Whistler's boots, snakeskin, trapping him. Jump, Whistler, jump! Soupy said, reaching for him, her eyes as big as, well, as big as boiled eggs. Whistler swore under his breath. He had one last option. He raised the galvanized pipe over his head, said a quiet, instantaneous prayer, then brought it down full force into the big zombie's face. The zombie squealed and released Whistler's boots. As Whistler's perch yawed to the side, he jumped, releasing the galvanized pipe in mid-flight, reaching for one of the yellow marker lights on top of the cab. He landed hard, his chest exploding with pain as it collided with hard metal, but his grip held. He dangled there against the cab, back kicking against a constant onslaught of grabbing arms. Inch by inch, he pulled himself up until he had finally made the roof of the cab. He took a moment to look over Sue B. He asked her if she had been bitten. She seemed whole, untainted by the Z's poisonous venom. If she had been bitten, Whistler would have had to let her go, and he couldn't imagine pitching her headlong over the side into the probing arms below. Whistler picked Sue B up and jumped down onto the hood of the rig. 
With two solid sidekicks, he shattered the windshield. Get out of the way, he shouted at Dutchy, barely caging up the desire to kick the kid's face in. Dutchy moved out of the captain's chair and fled into the sleeper cabin where Blink still lay in a fetal position, whimpering. Whistler shoved Sue into the cab, then ducked in himself. He settled behind the wheel and worked the gears, grinding the truck back and forth over the smart car that held the trailer hostage. After eight or nine jogs and jerks, Whistler managed to wrangle the trailer free, leaving the ruined smart car behind. Everyone kept silent, except for Blink, who couldn't manage to stop crying. As Whistler guided the big Kenworth W900 onto the freeway, it wasn't until he put 10 miles between them and the Overstock outlet store that Dutchy finally came out of the sleeper cabin and sat down on the doghouse to Whistler's right. I'm sorry, Dutchy said, looking down at his shoes. It's just it, uh... Sorry is good enough for now, Whistler cut him off, still too angry about having to kick in his own windshield. Where are you taking us? Dutchy asked. I'm heading to Stealth, Utah. I think I might find someone there who I've been looking for. Sue B. noticed Whistler's eyes flick up to a picture clipped to the sun visor. The picture was of Whistler and a girl with pretty dark hair and sharp features. They stood in front of the Bellagio Casino in Las Vegas, a majestic water fountain spitting out its brilliant show in red and blue behind them. Is that your girlfriend? Sue B. asked, pointing at the picture. She's my wife, Whistler said. Are you a daddy? Sue B. asked. Nope, I'm not a daddy, Whistler said, but couldn't contain the specter of a smile at the idea. Sue B. stood up from the passenger seat and moved over to Whistler. She pushed herself up onto the toes of her Mary Janes, still clutching her baby doll against her chest. She whispered into Whistler's ear, her breath innocent and sweet against his cheek. It's okay if you're not a daddy. I'm here now and I'll help you find her. The mild curve on Whistler's lips bloomed into a full smile. He put an arm around Sue B, pulled her in close, and kissed her on the top of the head. Buckle up, little kid, Whistler said to her. It can get bumpy out there. This has been the conclusion of Whistler and the Children, written by Craig Nibo, performed by Nate Peck. For today's song, obviously I'm going to play you a track from the Zombie Sing-Along trilogy. I picked a song from the third studio album. Almost every song I compose tells a story. This one is no exception. In it, you will hear the story of desolation after the zombie apocalypse. A fallen city lays before a disheartened soldier. He reflects on the war and everything that it has cost society as he walks through the desolation and takes inventory of the wreckage. I now give you Take It in the Chin from Zombie Sing-Along 3. Please remain calm and listen to the radio or TV for official news updates. Stay indoors and maintain protective measures until notified by the media or public safety. You are advised to minimize contact with all...
This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please, come again. You're welcome here. Thank you.